All right, so uh, we only have two more weeks left in our series, and so I'm going to preach this week, unless we'll get next week. And um, yeah, man, uh, hopefully you have learned a lot from this, and I think probably we're going to continue on with some classes over the summer that try to reinforce some of the things that we've actually talked about and try to make it actually applicable and something that you practice continually. All right? So, yes, last two weeks, literary criticism. This is a, a two sermons combined together, so we'll be here for a long time. Uh, not really, I actually only have one, I have two points. It's kind of one and a half points. Um, but it's, uh, the sermon title is really long, so you can just pull it from Facebook so you don't have to try to write it down. Uh, it's literary criticism, postmodernism in the Bible. Can't the scripture be open for any interpretation? All right? And so I'm going to sum up some of the major ideas that we've talked about so far this semester, and then Leslie's going to also do that in kind of a different way uh, next week. The passages were really long this week, and I'm not going to read them. Uh, the Romans 10 and 11 passage, I guess that's two chapters, so you know it's not terribly long, but the Hebrews 4 through 6, uh, that's uh, almost two and a half. And so um, I, I, it's not that I am opposed to reading Scripture in public for long periods of time, just naturally. But for many of us, that's not a very effective method of learning anymore. We, get, we doze out, uh, doze off pretty quickly. Uh, so I'm just going to kind of read a few scripture passages from those texts and then refer back to them. But if you haven't read them, go ahead and read them, read them, read them, read them. All right. So um, literary criticism, postmodernism of the Bible, can't the scripture be open for any interpretation? Like we've done with a lot of these really practical questions, the uh, sermon is not immediately... Um, a satisfactory answer, okay? It's not just a quick, let's kind of dispose of that question with some trite or cliche answer. Uh, it really kind of requires you to think back through it and really figure out how the passage itself is answering this question. And so if you can't remember on some of the questions that we've asked, like, you know, do you have to be spiritual to read well or do you have to be smart to read well? It's probably best not that you go back and listen to the audio first, but that you go back and actually read the passage to figure out what in this passage is actually answering this question? Because as we uh, interact with Scripture, interact with other people, uh, as we're reading Scripture, some of these, these natural questions pop up, and it's really great to go back and have some resources to think through. So wait, how did he answer that? How did they answer that? How does the Scripture answer that? And go back and actually uh, you know, kind of figure that out. But these two passages, uh, one coming from Paul, one coming from the author of Hebrews, we don't really have a good idea who that was, but both really understood uh, the Jewish way of thinking, the Jewish religious system very well, and we're talking about Israel's role in salvation for the Gentiles, but also whether they themselves will be saved. And so that's the context of both of these passages, and it seems kind of like it doesn't apply to us because he's very much talking to uh, what seems like an audience that would have understood some about uh, Jewish religiosity. So there's a little bit of unpacking in both of those you got to do, uh, but these passages are very much to explain to Gentiles or non-Jewish people uh, what God has been doing since the beginning uh, in the story of, uh, of the people of uh, Israel. Which, by the way, Hebrews is a great starting place for those of you who are really interested. I know there's a number of you who've gotten really interested in reading the Old Testament and trying to understand the story from beginning to the end. Hebrews is a great place to start and to go back to over and over again. Because Hebrews is really a retelling of the Old Testament from a Christian point of view. And so it's really great to be able to have that as a resource as you're reading uh, through the, uh, the Old Testament. Alrighty, so Hebrews 4, let's read this real quick. 
And I'll give you my two points, and uh, hopefully we uh, will be done somewhat quickly. Great. Hebrews 4. So therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, anytime there's a therefore, you've got to figure out what's before. And he's just been talking basically about how Israel was disobedient to God, even though they had his words and had heard the things that he had said. Okay? It's going to be a major factor in this, uh, this sermon about really having words and actually understanding those words. All right? People didn't understand it, and therefore they didn't enter into this promised land. He's speaking in kind of three levels here. Promised land, okay? Rest from their work, meaning that they could just kind of stop striving in life for both religiosity, for fame, for integrity, whatever. And then the third part is he's obviously talking about heaven. Like so much of Old Testament topics, there are these multiple levels being discussed, and almost always those levels are sort of three-tier reference. Never mind. Three-tiered. <laughs> Hit the miss. It happens. You know, what are you going to do? Um, the highest one is the meta-narrative, the larger story of what God is doing. Right? The second one is sort of the, uh, you know, story of Christ and how Christ through the gospel is saving us. And the first one is the local story or the local thing that's, that's going on, whatever immediate thing that's happening. So in this passage, you can easily see that, right? You've got the story of uh, Israel at the local level just sort of being saved. You've got Christ in this prediction of later on he's bringing a new Sabbath. And then the heaven, which is the meta narrative, sort of the finishing of that, uh, that story. Those three tiers of that, that, uh, that story that they're talking about. All right? And so that's going to be really, really helpful with Old Testament reading uh, in general. So, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you have found, uh, been found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they w- heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Some of you have other translations, did not share the faith they had, uh, which as a real side point here, you ever wonder why in Scripture sometimes it says another manuscript said this thing differently? Um, One of the important, I think, conclusions of literary criticism that has come to us is that we've got sort of four or five major transcripts of old that we've pulled from, and some of them have slight wording differences and or just don't even have stories written into them. Like the, the woman committing adultery, you ever notice you read through that and you're like, oh, this section wasn't even included in this text. Well, for some of you, that's scary. That seems like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? It's a very normal thing, right, to have copying errors uh, throughout time. One of the things that, um, that makes the Bible so uh, reliable and credible is that we have so many manuscripts of it uh, that you can always kind of come back and, and uh, compare those to other manuscripts to make sure that we know what's actually different. And the earliest sources we have are much closer to the time period when these things were actually written than really anything else we have. And so just those two things gives the scripture a lot of internal and external validity. validity. <laughs> Uh, it gives it a lot that we can trust in simply because of that. So for a long time, is the scripture, um, you know, reliable or just open for any t- interpretation? 
the modern argument a lot of times before we began to discover this was that, oh, no, it's just like anything else. There's copying errors. If any of you have a good friend who's a Muslim, uh, you may have heard that from them, that the Bible is full of all these errors and problems and issues, and so you can't trust it. And so a lot of the, the you know, ways of belief that differ from Muslims and uh, Christians, they can trace back to saying, well, your version of the Bible is wrong. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's been copied. So the modern side of that question, can it be open for interpretation, is it reliable, has already kind of been answered. The question is, yes, it's reliable. Um, it's more the postmodern answers to some of those questions that have tripped people up. Are these people simply just giving us their perspective, local perspective? Does it tie into anything bigger? Did they have any rules or authorities they were relying on? Uh, some of those questions we've already tried to answer through this series, and I want to uh, give you... Uh, an even kind of higher level or maybe more abstract way of answering this question, okay? So the, the, the phrase there that I really want you to pay attention to is they, they, their, their hearing of the scripture was no, of no value to them because they didn't combine it with faith, all right? Didn't combine it with faith. My first point here, and if you read through Romans 10 through 11, Paul is talking about how the Israelites have heard, they've been preached to, but the message was of no value to them. Same passage, uh, basically, because they hardened their hearts, disobeyed God, and didn't combine what they heard with faith. All right? And he uses this sort of play on hearing that, yes, they heard, but didn't hear. Uh, God hardened their hearts, gave them over to disobedience, like he's given all people over to disobedience, which is this kind of a scary passage. But in Romans 10 through 11, uh, Paul asked the question, how can they believe if they haven't heard? And so I'll ask you that same question, how can you believe if you haven't heard? And this is particularly for those of you who are new in your faith who really haven't heard the gospel of Christ. Because if you're like me, when you're really first starting off in your faith, there's aspects that you've heard, but hearing doesn't really bring understanding until you've combined it with the experience of faith. And this is really important, and particularly for those of us who are mature in our faith, because we, as we've learned more and, and uh, have a lot more knowledge in our head, there's always the easy tendency to mistake the experience of faith for the knowledge of things that we should believe. And this entire sermon series has been organized around the idea that when you read Scripture, you, the goal is not just simply hearing, but understanding and questioning your beliefs. What is it do you, that you believe, and why do you believe it? And, uh, you know, but again, I think we've also made very clear that our biggest goal, or excuse me, our biggest challenge isn't even quite at the level of understanding. It's just hearing it at all. We just don't pay much attention to Scripture. We don't hear it. And Paul's question of how do you expect to believe, or how does one believe not having heard it, is just as applicable to us because in our disobedience, we've often rejected understanding the scripture in the same way that the Israelites did. And all these things that the Israelites have missed, getting into a rest and, you know, experiencing the good things that God has for them and all these other things, we miss when we don't just start at the basic level of hearing scripture and move on to an understanding of it. Or simply, it's of no value to us. Religion is of no value to us if we haven't combined it with faith. Yeah. All right? So what does that mean? Well, I'm hopefully going to explain that a little bit here, but I want you to think about something that everyone loves to talk about, and that's the whole flat earthers thing, you know? How many of you would be willing to bet your life that the world was not flat? 
well, you're stupid. Because none of you have experienced that or know with any certainty that isn't based on other authority figures that the world is flat. If at the end of the day, someone really does point a gun to your head and says, listen, you can just recount your belief that the earth is flat, or you are, the earth is round, or you can decide that you're going to go along with it, and I'm going to take you up into space, and you're going to see. And if the earth is flat, well, hey, you're gone. You're a goner. If you really had that opportunity, I'm not so sure many of you would really take it on. And the fact that a third of you would is funny to me anyway. It's like that rocket man uh, who uh, created his own rocket and didn't fly quite high enough to verify uh, the data that, uh, that he had. And somehow wasn't injured in the process, which is kind of amazing. I'm simply using this as an illustration to say that a lot of what we have faith in, we have really good evidentiary proof of it. But when it comes to betting or staking our life on it, if we don't understand it very well, and more or less, if we can't have experienced at least something close to what's enough evidence for us, many of us won't really do anything about it when it comes down to it. And that's really kind of an interesting idea simply because it allows us to be very, very loose and disconnected in our ideas. It's why in the first place people could even believe in flat earth in this day and age because they can simply say at the end of the day, I've never experienced it, and I would imagine many of them probably don't understand uh, the science behind it as well. Um, and it, it just becomes easy to do that, right? I mean, it's the same thing, really, uh, when those of you who are in my shop are wanting to know about your car stuff. There's a real interesting dynamic we have, and that is what's called the principal agent problem. You have no knowledge of cars, and I have at least a decent amount of knowledge, and so I can pretty much tell you whatever I want, and you kind of have to believe it. Very few people come into uh, the shop and have really any idea what happens. I get things all the time. I got one this week. You know, the shop changed my brakes, and now my car doesn't start. I want to be like, I'm sorry, but those two things are 100% unrelated. <laughs> there is no, no possibility in the world that changing brakes is going to keep your car from starting. Now, unless in the process of changing your brakes, someone just took some scissors and cut some wires in a whole different part of the car, then yes, that can be possible. So we, we don't have a lot of understanding or knowledge. And when we, we lack that understanding and knowledge, what happens in, in, uh, in that instead of that knowledge? All kinds of crazy conspiracy theories and wrong ideas about the world. So is it any wonder then that so many Christians in our society have such strange ideas about what Christianity actually is? With a lack of understanding, what falls in the gap there are just a lot of weird people saying stuff and experiencing things locally where there's no real authority structure, and we just have crazy ideas how things ought to work in the same way that not knowing how a car works might make you think that brakes and a car starting are related. So there's a lot of these examples, and this is the current state that we're in, is just having a lot of really weird and strange ideas there in the vacuum that is not understanding the scripture that God has spoken to us. One of my favorite passages in John 7 that I think should encourage us to always combine faith with what we read. Now, what does that even mean? It means when I read a passage, I'm asking myself, do I believe this? And what should I believe? But the belief part isn't it. The belief part is the understanding. You've got to combine that with the faith that says, okay, I'm going to actually act and live 
based on this belief that I now have. That was advanced stuff. But this is the formula for maturity in Christ. It's really as simple as that. You hear, you understand, you take that understanding, and then you combine it with faith, with saying, here's what I believe, and so I'm going to do something about it and act on it. And all of a sudden, I'm in this experience where I'm interacting with God, and I'm able to trust him more and more as my faith grows, uh, and, uh, and I'm understanding who he really is. But in John 7, um, time, time to give you really the background of it, Jesus basically, in a passage that I use all the time with people, particularly who don't, uh, aren't Christian, is Jesus just basically says, if you want to know whether or not uh, what I'm saying is true, start doing it and see if it is. He just kind of throws that out there. Just start. Wherever you want to start, just start it. That's John 7. That's the, uh, just figure it out and go with it, and you'll see if what I'm saying is actually true. Okay? And I think that's uh, probably what a lot of us uh, have to start trying to figure out uh, in our reading of Scripture. Am I doing what this says I ought to do? Many of us, if we're honest, can think back to really specific situations in our life where we just completely ignored any kind of scriptural or spiritual advice that we got. And in that moment, we're simply saying what we believe isn't going to be combined with my faith today. That's if I believe it at all, because not to say that we have to consistently do something for it to be proven that we believe it, but it's a pretty good indicator uh, when those actions don't line up with it. In Psalm 34, which is one of the most important passages that, uh, that I've ever read in my faith, because at a time when I was kind of at a crossroads, I'd been a Christian for about a year and a half, I had everything sort of figured out externally, uh, you know, had a great relationship, had friends, uh, was going to a good school, but was incredibly depressed. And this was one of the first times I got serious about um, I'm not even going to read it because we don't have time, but Psalm 34, and I'd read it in the message. One of the times I got really serious about doing something about my faith, I'd been kind of called to do something completely different than what I wanted to do, felt that very specifically to go to UTD instead of being a pilot, and uh, just remember kind of having everything put together and, and nothing really feeling um, good, you know, just kind of being in a really dark place. And I remember reading Psalm 34 in the message, and, and David just uh, basically kind of in a weird passage, because this is where David is pretending he's insane in front of Abimelech. So I'm not really for sure. If you read through it in the message, it doesn't seem like he's insane. So he must have been saying this in a weird way, because the passage seems very clear and, uh, and, a, and a really great passage. But it basically just says, you know, for those of you who are down and sad, join with me in spreading the good news of how good God is. And there's kind of two points of the scripture that I'd never really read be before until uh, I, you know, the Spirit had kind of led me through another person to really understand that. One was that God's goodness isn't something you're supposed to keep to yourself, but a lot of us do. We think our relationship with God is incredibly private and should be, and I'm not talking about gushy romantic language that a lot of us use that's just inappropriate about God, but I am talking about uh, we, we keep the goodness of God often to ourselves because we don't want to offend anybody who doesn't believe in God, okay? Um, and then the second one was that, that there is a, a, you know, horizontal component to all of that, that as you talk to other people, excuse me, vertical component, you're really having to articulate all these really great things about God, and you're realizing in the process, wow, these things are really true about God. Because it's easy to believe things about God and who he is and, and just keep them locked up in your head, but if you've ever had to try to explain to someone who doesn't believe in God how good God is, you start to really figure out what is it about him that I actually believe? What can I say without feeling ashamed of what I'm about to say? 
What can I say without some cliche, God is good, he'll take care of it, if I haven't really experienced that and can't back that up with something in my life that I can explain about God's character? And so that passage just totally turned me around. I mean, it really made me think, man, I think about myself all day long, and I'm sad, and I'm depressed, and I don't think about God's goodness, and I certainly don't talk to people about how good God is. And that's really where uh, I got kind of a call to discipleship. Not a call to ministry, but just a call to sort of pay attention to the fact I need to be out there talking to people and ministering to them. Uh, and, and I've spent the last two years of my Christianity basically just kind of locked up in my own mind. And that was really helpful for me because it was a moment where finally I combined a belief I had, which was I think God is good and worthy with an actual faith and action to do something about those things. But it took me like two years just to do that. And I think a lot of us have those same stories. We hear something, we understand it. We've got five or ten years maybe where we finally combine that with any kind of, uh, of faith. So the first point, how can you believe if you haven't heard, understood? Uh, well, you simply can't. It's a rhetorical question. Paul's asking a, a question to challenge us to, to help us recognize that you know, when we read the word of God and we don't experience God through that and we're not combining what we're understanding and hearing with actually going out and in faith, uh, trusting God is who he is, uh, then we're, uh, our faith is of no value. The second point here comes from Hebrews 11, 1 through 6. 1 and 6, really. The passage that we have in Focus on Jesus that I've always really been fascinated by. Where, you know, faith is... Uh, he basically defines faith in verse 1 and then in, in verse 6. I think this is probably just worth reading. Why not, right? Hebrews. I think what always vexed me about these passages was that it didn't seem to leave much room for doubt, and it seemed to be very cultish in that God's basically asking us to do something that doesn't seem very human or natural. And as I've struggled and wrestled with these passages, I've kind of come to see them in a little bit of a different light. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, you know, some of the flat earth people that I've actually talked to in person or uh, on the internet, that's a pretty good definition of what they think about flat earth. Uh, sure of what they hope for and certain of what they do not see. So I'm not so sure that uh, the Hebrews passage here is trying to uh, you know, define faith in God as much as initially just trying to define what it looks like to just have faith in something in particular. Not that all faith is good faith, certainly not. And then in six, and I think this is the one that's probably more important, and without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now that goes back to uh, the idea even of hearing and believing and then actually combining uh, that uh, with faith, right? We earnestly seek him. But I remember when I, really, uh, when I was a new Christian, I read that passage just kind of like, okay, God is only pleased when I have complete unquestioning faith in him and only uh, it will reward me as I show my diligence in my faith. That doesn't sound like a very good God, to be honest. It actually kind of sounds, I guess, see this week on NPR, them finding that like uh, burial tomb of like 15 kids that were sacrificed uh, in, uh, is it Peru? Brazil, is Peru? Scary, right? Uh, terrible. You know, this is one of the largest mass graves that they found probably a five or six hundred years ago. Well, apparently the backstory is El Nino is at fault. <laughs> uh, when they had massive rains in an environment that really wasn't sort of meant for or used to rains, they would think God was doing something bad. And so in order to uh, appease God, they would sacrifice young children and animals and things like that. Well, that's, that's faith. That's some crazy faith, right? Uh, but... Also, when I think about that kind of faith, 
it's the kind of faith that's also very reactive and that has a, a, it's not really a relationship about progressing and growing, it's simply a reactive, let's just throw this out there and hopefully God will do something about it. When you read this passage, I don't think at all God, uh, you know, the author of Hebrews is saying that God isn't pleased with us when we're growing in our faith. I think actually what he's trying to say very, very clearly here is that what makes us thrive in life, what makes us actually thrive the way God wants us to, is combining those things we understand about God and actually living out faithfully. That a faithful life, a life that actually follows along with God's plan for us, is what God has, has intended. And he's not going to be pleased with those sacrifices that are not earnest, but that are reactive sacrifices to some El Nino in our lives. But it's those of us who are following and growing and maturing and constantly combining with faith that ultimately pleases him. Uh, it's the same thing he said in the prophets of old, right, to Israel. Your sacrifices are a stench to me. How about you actually go and take care of the poor and the foreigner and all those people who are neglected in your society? It's the same idea, really, that that kind of earnest faith is about growth uh, and not about reacting uh, because of some terrible thing that's happened uh, in my life. So this conversation about faith, I think, always comes down to this sort of Christian cliche that people have used for a long time. Preachers probably uh, may be more guilty than anybody, but I honestly have a tough time saying it any better, and so I want to say it and then try to kind of make a little bit of a change on it, and that's the idea that everybody has faith in something or someone, right? That it's not possible as a human to not have faith. Although, I would definitely argue that there are some people who have a lot more faith in things than others. Some people just live much more skeptically uh, than, uh, than some of us others uh, do, which, uh, you know, is a, f a fair statement here. And one of the things that I hear, too, is that you either have faith in God and you have faith in yourself. I don't believe that at all, actually. And the more I think about it, the more I think humans don't actually have the capability to have faith in themselves. We're too weak. We're too... Uh, insecure. What you actually have faith in, if it appears that you have faith in yourself, is faith in an identity that you've kind of created or fell into that a whole lot of authority figures around you have told you is a pretty good version of yourself. Whether that's media or your generation or your society or people you respected, you simply take on an identity that you have faith in that identity that other people have more or less created for you. If those of you who are super into the spiritual warfare stuff, I think probably identity creating is a business Satan's been in for a long time. If you can get people to label or categorize themselves really specifically, then it keeps you in faith in that this is your identity and who you are. And one of the things that I think is really challenging and scary about uh, you know, us as millennials is that our identity is further and further and further away from, you know, God creating that kind of identity at all for us. We take on all these identities that have a lot to do with other things apart from being a Christian and have less and less of an idea what a Christian ought to look like in our society. And that's really problematic, okay? It's really problematic. And so if there's one thing that I want you to hear in all of this, that one of the most important questions you can ask in talking about faith and combining faith is what are those identities that I have that I really have faith in. You know, as a kid, they're really simple labels, right? Jerk, what, jerk? No, that's not a label. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
what was I even trying to say with that? Uh, nerds, God, I don't even know. Uh, jerk is not like a cool group in school. Those are the jerks. Jocks, there we go, man, thanks. Spoken like a true jock. Just kidding. Uh, in about a four-year time span in middle school, I went from being a skater to kind of a skater punk, okay, to a redneck. Let me, let me write down the other ones I had. Uh, to a kind of a preppy guy, you know? As someone who is young, I'm not, I'm not going to have a problem admitting to you that I had a real identity problem. I needed to, to sort of like, but part of that wasn't so much because, I wonder how much of that, that was just because how bored I get, you know? I'll take on an identity, I'm like, this identity, I'm not that crazy about it anymore. I'm going to move on to the next one. Uh, but even in my life, I can be honest with you to tell you, I've done something very similar with that. At least in two major identities that I've seen over the last decade, one the academic, and one which is very different, the sort of blue collar, as Chelsea says, country worker, Okay. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting. I, I think we're always kind of taking on those identities, whether it fits into our personality, whether it fits in with what growing up we had a lot of respect for or with what now we really want to highly identify with. Uh, it reminds me of, and this is probably not, eh, it's been a long time, but that white lady who pretended to be black up in Seattle and was the president of the NAACP. <laughs> okay. Um, so we take on these identity things that we want, and uh, I think some of us really need to figure out, again, myself included, how to take on a Christian identity uh, in our current day and age. And what does that mean? And part of the problem that we've had in the past is that because the identity is so diverse and so pluralistic and so crazy that we avoid actually trying to get that too far in, but that's actually the wrong way of dealing with that. The better way of doing it is to actually counter it by talking and trying to be a, a group of people who are at the core redefining what Christianity really is uh, according to biblical things. In fact, that's really what remnants always did, whether it was the Reformation uh, or whether it was uh, you know, the, um, the early church in, uh, after the first century. Whatever it was, they continued to redefine what it means to actually be a Christian. One of the books that, uh, that I read that I really love um, is, I um, can't remember what it is, actually. I can never remember books. That's not surprising. Remember that book you read about Pentecostalism all around the world? Yeah, whatever. Uh, something like that. <laughs> and he, he talks about kind of five Pentecostal identities around the world and how one of them really sort of, uh, you know, matches with Jesus and the other four really match more with uh, a lot more of kind of cultural and uh, historical versions of Christianity. And it's no surprise the one that really looks a lot like Jesus uh, is, uh, is doing some really great things and challenging the status quo, whereas the other groups are either large megachurches or fundamentalists or whatever else. So, my final point here, and then we'll end up. How can you believe if you haven't heard? Uh, and, and I didn't even ask the second question, I'm sorry, but I don't really know how to best word it, so I apologize for that. But I really wanted to, to, to say, how can you thrive if you don't have faith? How can you live if you don't have faith? I don't really know how to best put it. But I think that's what Paul is asking in Hebrews 11. I mean, excuse me, the author is asking in Hebrews 11. So how can you expect to really uh, thrive in your Christianity, to really grow in your maturity uh, if you don't have the kind of basic faith? Hebrews 4 is talking about that as well, but I'll get to that in just a, a moment as we uh, conclude here. So pleasing God then isn't about sacrifice. Um, that's the exist part. That's, that's a blind faith. Believing that God exists is, is blind faith. Okay, as uh, you know, the scripture says, even the demons believe. It's those seeking God earnestly uh, that will be rewarded in their faith. 
that mentoring process, that growth experience that God gives us through the Spirit. So, the conclusion, we have to combine the things that we're hearing and understanding in Scripture with actual faith. Because if we don't, your faith is absolutely of no value to you. It's just not a value. And, and that's not to guilt you. Uh, most of us, the scripture is very clear that different people have different measures of faith. And I don't believe that's a natural thing or an intelligence thing. I think what the scripture is usually talking about when it's talking about measures of faith is you're at a certain place in your life where you have a certain measure of faith. Okay? I don't, this is not like talents. Okay? I don't think God gives some people like 100% faith. And other people get like 5% faith. All right? No, I just think you get that as you go. It's like anything else. As you grow in your mentoring process, as you're rewarded, as you grow to trust someone in a relationship, your faith grows. It takes you longer and longer in the interim period of deciding, am I going to actually act on this belief that I have? Unless, and maybe there's a waxing waning, it's some deep thing in you that you really haven't wanted to give, in, give over to God. But as you grow in your maturity, you just sort of are quicker to trust what God is doing is what he, you know, he's doing, and you're going to do it. But when you're young in your faith, it takes a long time to get to that point, and that's okay. But you, that's the goal always in faith, is combining what we understand uh, with the faith. Otherwise, we have, uh, it's of no value to us. You know, this certainly isn't an idea. Faith is, is unfortunately too often something we talk about in really vague terms. But if you'll notice in Hebrews 4 and in uh, the Roman sin passage, the, the core of this passage is about Jesus. It's about recognizing that faith is walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Because if faith is ultimately about trusting God, you have no better person than in Christ to trust the character of God. Because really that is what faith is, is you're asking yourself, can I trust God? Because after you kind of get over that initial hump of believing he exists, the real question is, can I trust him? Can I trust him to come through on a daily basis, a weekly basis, and the big decisions of my life, and eventually forming my identity? Can I trust him? Is he good? And it's only through faith, as Jesus said, test me to figure out whether or not my authority comes from God or whether it's my own, that you're going to grow in that and actually understand it and be able to come to the conclusion that God really is good. And that person is, is Christ. It's not an idea. So, can't the scripture be open for any interpretation? And you're like, you didn't answer that question at all. Well, of course I did. In the modernist viewpoint, of course it can't. It's just as good as any of the other documents we have. In the postmodern viewpoint, of course it can be open to any interpretation if you don't combine it with faith. Because guys, if you've noticed... People have a tendency to emphasize or overemphasize certain qualities about Jesus. When it comes down to it, most people react to him in a certain way. It's a lot easier to misinterpret or reinterpret ideas than it is a person. And there's a reason I think people see good news in Jesus. They may not fully go out of their way, you know, to believe in him or whatever else, but people really see something that they would love to be true if God really was like him. But they haven't combined it with faith. Many of us, it's just hard to do that. So the scripture is always open for interpretation when we don't combine things with faith. Because in faith, we get to experience a consistent character in God. 
But without it, it's just a bunch of ideas that we can argue about all day long. This idea, that idea, I prefer this one, you prefer that one. Let's just argue about it. It's open for interpretation. But the actual experience of God, of experience Jesus in us, is not open for interpretation. Okay? He is who he is. And when we experience him, someone stop texting me. The only people texting me right now are people in church. What are you trying to tell me? Hurry up. No one's texting me. It's always people in church who are texting me. I don't lie, don't lie to me. <laughs> is that experience isn't open for interpretation. So we ought not get upset and afraid at people looking at the scripture and coming up with a million different thoughts on it. No wonder. It's those people who are faithful to God. Those are the people that we will be able to come con- to consensus with because we're ultimately dealing with the same God. And in fact, that proof, that validity is in that experience of God. As people of faith from all over come together and realize no matter what denomination they're from, what country they're from, they're ultimately living out the character of God in their space and time. And there might be some peripheral differences there, but at the core of what they're doing, they're living out the character of God in and around where they're at. And that's why the story of us interacting with some just really random groups uh, around our country, but that Pentecostal book is even better because it's about people interacting with people around the world, find a commonality of faith when they go and meet other Christians, people who are really, truly uh, uh, have combined faith with their belief and are following God. There's going to be a consistency and a unity in all of that. And so I challenge you with this, just like I challenged you at the beginning of this sermon series, to as you're reading, as you're paying attention to what the scripture says, please don't skip over the part where it's requiring you to do something in faith. Because so much of the scripture is about not only forming your beliefs, but giving you something to do to enact that belief. God is not just interested in our brains being changed temporarily. He is absolutely interested, as Hebrews 4 talks about, us getting beyond those elementary teachings where we're arguing about baptism and faith and all these other things, and to get to the point of what we're supposed to be doing, which is what in Hebrews 4? None of y'all read it this week. Bunch of losers. Righteousness. Following Christ. The elementary stuff is the teaching stuff. The stuff that we hear, we argue. The stuff that it, 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 you know, puts your money where your mouth is is actually whether or not your lives have been transformed to look more like Christ. And that will never happen if you're not combining what you read in Scripture and hearing with faith. With going out on a limb and trusting God and deciding whether or not you're going to pay any attention to those things that you say you believe and that you say uh, are true to you. And so that's an encouragement, but certainly uh, it's, a, uh, it's a challenge as well. I'm going to say a prayer for us, and then we're going to uh, take communion. So communion here, uh, we are a little bit loud, and we like to celebrate uh, what God has done for us. And there'll be some folks in the back, take some bread, dip it in the juice, and then uh, you can make your way back to your... Uh, your seat, or you can talk, or which is what happens. You know, it's always kind of cool if we can uh, try to focus our um, conversations on things that are a little bit more reverent, which uh, is good for the uh, the time. Not that it's not reverent to love on someone, but, you know, uh, lunch plans, while very important, are not probably the most reverent thing you could talk about during communion. <laughs> You always ask people what they thought about the scripture and then guilt them into uh, uh, having, uh, you know, not read it and you being better than them. That is reverent.
Lord God, thank you for uh, just being a good God. And thank you for, gosh, this incredible gift of your word that you've spoken to us. Please forgive us for being so flippant with it, for ignoring it so easily, uh, for pulling it out of the major uh, parts of our heart and, uh, and our mind and decision-making. I just pray that you would help us really appreciate in honesty and with integrity the scripture and what it tells us about uh, who you are and uh, the character of your son that you've sent to us. Jesus, we thank you so much for uh, just giving us a model of, uh, of how to do life, even though that model takes a lot of unpacking and requires us to uh, just step out in faith to uh, imitate you in ways that uh, doesn't, does, don't seem to be completely in, uh, congruent with our identity that we've created for ourselves or our current cultural climate, but help us to be faithful in all of that, knowing that uh, you reward us um, as we grow more and more to be like you, as we earnestly seek uh, your face and uh, you to make decisions in our life. Love you, Lord, and uh, thank you for saving uh, some terrible sinners like us. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.